So the big question is this, how do most agents who don't have access to the secrets that most successful agents hoard to themselves grow and prosper in today's competitive real estate environment? That's the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Pat Hyben and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. And now for the review of the day. All right, I got a review, of course, a five-star review from Broman. Thanks, Pat. Five stars. I listen to every podcast. It has great information and motivates me first thing in the morning. I didn't realize how much I've been missing out on just by thinking outside the box. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Thank you, Broman. Keep the comments coming, guys. I love them. And remember... I eat feedback for breakfast, so give me a one-star review if you want, or a five-star review if you want. I don't care. And the more reviews we get, the better guests we get. So please, subscribe first, and then leave us a review or wherever you're listening. All right, Rockstar Nation got a great guest today from San Francisco, California. First timer, Ruth Krishnan is on the line and she is doing big things in San Francisco and we're going to get deep today. So Ruth, welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Hey Ruth, why don't you give everybody a little rundown on who you are? Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you better. Sure. Well, I'm a Midwestern girl that grew up in a huge family with not a lot of money and came out to San Francisco about 20 years ago, I guess it was, with not a dollar in my pocket, not a friend in the world, found some roommate on Craigslist and fell into real estate about 2010 when everybody else was getting out and just really built a business from the ground up and uh, now am, you know, last year we did $100 million and in sales. And so couldn't be prouder of, of where we've got to, to be. Yeah, that's awesome. I got a lot of questions coming out of that, but first we'll get to some nitty gritty. So how many houses did you sell last year or say in the last 12 months? 55. That's awesome. And, and so what is your, you know, hundred million volume, 55 homes. Uh, what is your, as we like to call it, ECI, ego commission income? What was the total gross income from that? So gross was 2.6 million. 2.6. Okay, beautiful. And what's your profit margin? 50%. That's great, right? So one, three. I mean, that, that's awesome for a, a Midwest girl. That's awesome for anybody. You, you know, I'm curious about that Midwest. Like what, what made you come out to San Francisco? You know, I traveled a bit when I was in college. I traveled abroad and every time I would come back to St. Louis, I'd feel a little bit more and more out of place and just realize like, it's probably not where I wanted to put my roots down. And so uh, my last trip abroad, I was just looking for advice from other travelers. If you could live anywhere in the world with a lot of culture, people with an open mind that kind of feels a little bit European, where would you be? And people we just kept saying San Francisco, San Francisco. So I'd never been there, but I went back home and told my parents, like, I'm going to San Francisco. And they were like, you've never been there. I'm like, yeah, but I heard it was really cool. So I just left, packed my stuff and 
left and I told him, well, you can always come home. Right. You know, so, um, but I never looked back. Yeah, that's, that, that's awesome. That's a great story and, and it's certainly paid off and I guess it, it fits your soul a lot better. It must. Yeah, it's, it's a really amazing place to be, you know, a lot of opportunity and just, you know, everybody hustling all the time and, you know, so, so many really, really smart people. And, you know, I feel so fortunate to have the life that I have and the career that I have. It's amazing. That's awesome. Sounds like if you had stayed in St. Louis and become a real estate agent, you probably wouldn't be very good at it because uh, you wouldn't have the enthusiasm that you have for San Francisco. Well, and I'd probably be talking about some liberal things and stuff that wouldn't go over very well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so let's talk about your business. So like uh, uh, of those 55 deals at $100 million in volume, what, how many of that uh, was listings versus buyers? So we do 50-50. I really, I know a lot of times agents, as they get bigger in their careers, they, they kind of snub off the buyer part of the business. Um, I think that buyers become sellers. And where, where, where I live, like you, it's still a really hot market and it's definitely been an extremely hot market for the last many years. And so getting a buyer in a contract, oftentimes you're competing against like 10 other offers or you're trying to scour and find something for them off market. So these buyers are ready to like name their firstborn children after you. They like love you. They're in the trenches with you. And, um, and so like that's, that feeds my ego. Like I love that feedback of like, Oh my God, you're amazing. And you know, on the listing side, you know, you are oftentimes we are selling things for 200, 500, even a million dollars over asking. That's not unusual. So you'd think that sellers would name their firstborn children after you as well. But I think there's a little bit of like, Oh, well, you know, how hard can it be? You put the sign up, you got 10 offers, you know, (laughs) I probably could have done it myself you know, plus they're paying you such a large amount of commission, you know, and they see it as, you know, when, if they're writing a check for a hundred thousand dollars, regardless of if it's to both sides and half of it, you're spending somewhere else, you know, they, they just see the hundred thousand dollars. Of course. Yeah. So those are really, really high expectations, which I'm, I'm totally fine with, but it's just, it's a very different kind of relationship between buyers and sellers. So I like to work both sides because I find that it keeps me balanced, keeps me humble, keeps me, gives me that passion for the business because I'm not like worn out because I have that, that feedback. So I like, I like both sides. So, okay. So first of all, I want to ask you about the, the multiple offer situation. You have a statistic I read that said you get 113% of, of sale price. You, you average 113% of sale pr- of list price. Average agent in your area averages 104%. So uh, let, let's say someone's listening to this and they're in a similar market. And they're like, hey, I'm at the industry average. What do you do specifically, right? Specifically, what can you teach us that allows you to get, you know, 9% more than the average agent in your market on your listings? Well, I think there's, you know, it starts really with the offer preparation. So um, my background, I had an interior design business before I was in, in real estate. And so I have the ability to walk into a house and just quickly see like, oh, here's some easy, quick updates that we could, we could make. So it's not unusual for one of my sellers to spend like anywhere between thirty dollars and $50,000 prepping their house to get it on the market. So we're putting in new countertops, we're redoing floors, we're putting in new lighting, we're bringing in top, top stagers. And, you know, a lot of times people walk in and they're like, wow, you know, Ruth, you have the best houses. And it's like, 
you know, this is the same house as the house down the street that's like not staged and still has the asbestos ceiling, same exact floor plan. It's just that, you know, this, the listing agent didn't have the confidence to go in and sell to the seller. Like, Hey, if you spend this 50 grand, I'm going to get you an extra 200 on the backside. And I literally have a case study on my website where it's almost the exact same house on a different block that was on the market at the same time that didn't do the things that we did that sold for $250,000 less than the one that, that we sold that we, that the seller spent 50 grand on. So the, the ROI really, really is there. And I believe that. Um, so one is prep. Um, the second is, is negotiation. I mean, I, I've been in, in situations with agents where they tell me like, oh, well, we got 10 offers. Like we should just, you know, the top one is so high. We should take it. It's like, I mean, yeah, you could, but you know, why not ask for more? You know, you, I mean, it doesn't hurt to ask. And I think that a lot of times even sellers are shy sometimes to ask, but, you know, just kind of having the experience to lay out for them, like what could happen being on both sides of the transaction. It, you know, if you're a really solid agent, like you're always going to bring that other agent back. So, you know, there was a situation recently where we had one offer and the seller would have totally taken it, but we decided to go back and ask for more. And then the agent on the other side was not very strong. And she just said, well, you know, finally she talked to her buyers and came back and said, we can't go out up. I'm so disappointed. Like now we're not going to get the house. And I said, Hey, why don't you counter me back at the same number? If that's your highest number, whatever is the highest number, just send me back the ball. And she's like, well, but it's the same number. I said, yeah, but the ball's in your court. I can't do anything with it. She's like, I know, but that would be absurd because you just countered me. I'm like, just trust me. Yes, you know? good, good gracious. So, so she so did yeah, and they took it. She did and they took it. And she was like completely shocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. And so how do you deal with sellers or, you know, you know, the, the, the thought process would be, hey, if I'm going to get 13% over, why don't I just raise my price 10%? Yeah. That comes up a lot, you know, so we, I talk a lot about funnels and glasses. So um, glasses, like, yeah, I was just having this conversation with a seller yesterday and I had recommended a list price of nine ninety five, and the ultimate sales price should be somewhere between one, two and one, three. And, you know, I was telling him like, look, if people are like this particular place is flawed, it has some issues. And I said, you know, people come in with 995 glasses on, then those issues get minimized, right? But if I have like $1.3 million glasses on, I have a certain different set of expectations. And we see this all the time with, with buyers as they move their, their price points. You know, they, they say like, oh, I only have a million dollar price point and I want X, Y, and Z. And then they can't find it. And then they say, well, I'm going to raise my price point up to like 1.5, but now I want this other set of criteria. And then, you know, so it's like, as they raise, they change their expectations. So if you have what, what I've seen is that if you have your 995 glasses on and you see the house and you, you're like, wow, this is great deal. Like, yeah, it has these flaws, but it's a really great deal. And then you get involved in the disclosures and then you talk to the agent and you say, oh, well, it looks like there's going to be four or five other offers. And then you look at the comps and the comps show that it's going to sell between one, two and one, three. By that point, you're like, and your emotion, the buyers are invested and they've already like moved their stuff in, in their mind. They've like picked out new carpet, like whatever. 
And so then a lot of times they do go where they need to go in order to win. But if they started there, it would be like, I don't know. I need to think about it. The bedroom is small. The lighting is bad. It's a lower floor, whatever it is. And all those, then, then they pause and then it sells for less because they want to come back in and negotiate. So in order to get people up, the properties have to sell very quickly. We need to get an offer that first week in seven to 10 days. Otherwise, once it sits for a while, then it feels stale and people want to negotiate. That's, that's a great way to explain it. You know, because here's the thing, right? Because you know, probably going in that if they're looking, say, you know, eight to a million, that you're going to be the best that they're going to see that day, right? Or that they've seen yet. You right. know, you're going to be the best, right? Even though with flaws or whatever. And so then at that point, they're emotionally attached. Like they've walked into it and they're like, we want to buy it. They've made that mental commitment. And then by that time, it's too late. Oh, guess what? There's multiple offers, other people. Then they got social proof. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, well, the FOMO sits in, right? They don't want to miss out. And then they get into a bidding war. Now, you, you had said funnels and got What's funnels? So funnel is what I call like, so in this particular property that I was talking about, you know, the seller asked me, well, who do you think the buyer is? And I said, well, I think it's a single bachelor, you know, and um, that doesn't cook and, you know, that doesn't need like a roommate and probably a tech person. And he completely agreed. And he's like, well, you know, so, so that's who we need to target to. Well, yeah, that's fine. But really like we want to widen the funnel as much as possible because even if like we're getting like say a couple or, or a woman who wouldn't necessarily want to live on that street because it's a little bit dangerous, a single woman, like, but she's willing to for a certain price. So she may not be able to pay, be willing to pay up for it in the way that someone who's not worried about that. But just the fact that her offer comes in is going to make other people bid higher. Right? So when someone calls me and they say, how many offers do you have? And I'm like, five they're going to write a different number than if I say none or one, right? So it doesn't even matter if one of, they don't know what the numbers are of those offers. So even if someone doesn't hit it out of the ballpark because they're not the ideal person for that property, the fact that they put in an offer is going to make it sell for higher. No, I love that. That's great. And of course, it helps you with your staging or your improving, like, you know, why you should spend a hundred grand or 200 grand fixing it up because it widens the funnel. Right. And like what, like maybe there, maybe like that funnel is maybe some of those buyers can only spend a million and we know it's not going to go for a million, but some of them will write a million. Right. But if we had it priced at one, two, they probably wouldn't come in and write a million. And I think your point about being the best property that they've seen all day, that's huge, right? Because if we price it at one, two, one, three, then it's, and they're looking in that price instead of the million dollar price, it's not going to be the best property they saw all day. No. And then they'll write a lower offer on it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you got sure. this. <laughs> you can so, come work so, out here. <laughs> So, so what happens if, like, what advice do you give when you're working with buyers? You know, there would be opposite of this, right? Now you're on the other side, you, you, get, you got a slick agent on the other side, a smart agent, a savvy agent, let's say, on the other side, and they've, you know, there's five offers and you've written this Mac Daddy offer that's really good. And uh, they come back and they don't say anything like, 
you know, it's going to take this. They simply go sellers countering at, you know, one, three, like how, how do you know, like, what do you do with your buyer or do you tell your buyer, well, that's the counter or you know what I mean? Like, how do you counteract that strategy? So I try to get ahead of that strategy. So I try to not get the, I try not to get a multiple counter. I try to verbally get the only, only like not, you know, only counter that's not really a counter, right? So I would try like, instead of waiting for the counter to get ahead of it and call the agent and be like, hey, you know, this is Ruth Christian. I'm sure, you know, like, oh, we know each other. We're friends, right? Like part of, part of our job as agents is to be very well liked by other agents trust by other agents and to have them want to do business with you. So making time for those relationships is very, very important. So I do that very well. So when I call an agent, like they want to take my call in an offer situation. And oftentimes I happen to be late for that call. So they have already got all their offers in already, right? I want to know what have you got? So when I'm calling in and I'm saying like, oh, you already received. That's that's a tough one, right? You're calling in late. Like how late? I mean, because you don't want them to be like, oh, we already took an offer. Well, you you want like, I can't lose this house. No. So you want to let them know like ahead of time, like, hey, you know, I'm going to be in a meeting at that time. Got it. Okay. But I have something for you, right? Got an offer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they know something's coming. Right. And there's not a listing agent on the planet that's not going to wait for an offer that they don't know what is. Right. 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 You oh, know. Yeah. So, so anyway, so then, you know, so you want to be ahead of that. So I think by having an offer, I mean, in, in this market, you know, most of our offers are non-contingent. So we're, you know, if you're going to win, it's usually most of the offers that I write are non-contingent. So we've prepared everything up front and we, we do have a little bit of a different market. Like we get a full set of disclosures with all the reports 95% of the time. So you call the agent, let's say it's Jackie and you'd be like, Jackie, Hey, it's Ruth. Listen, you know, I know you got five offers. I, my buyer is non-contingent. Uh, no financing contingency, no home inspection, settle quick or settle whenever you guys want to. What's it going to take with those terms? No, I'm not going to ask what's it going to take. I'm going to ask, did you get X, right? So I, did you get X? Did you get Because, you know, maybe Jackie might say like, oh, it's going to take $2 million, even though I've only got 1.7, right? (laughs) So I don't want to know necessarily. At, that might that won't be my first question. It may. But be is she a really going to tell you? Is she going to tell you? I mean, Jackie, a lot, a lot of too. times. Yeah, I would say eighty percent of the time I can get that answer. Really? Wow. Yes. So you know, I think it's you need to be in the range, and you need to be like you know, if like right now I'm in the middle of an I have three offers come in for a place today, and I'll tell you, there's one of them I really don't want to deal with, and she's the top one. So you know, she's just been really annoying. She's asked a lot of questions that are just like she should have read and looked up herself and, you know, just like constantly like a thorn in my side. I'm like, oh my God, like what's this escrow going to be like, right? So if someone, if one of the other people like was a really strong agent that I was like, gosh, this person knows their stuff. They're going to make this the easiest deal I've done all day. I would be happy to give them the number that would beat that agent. Well, that's the thing I want to ask you because, you know, when I watch like million dollar listing and I'm not like, an, you know, watch them all, but, you know, I've certainly seen them and it always seems to me that uh, the ones in California 
are always, you know, and, and when I sold, I sold back on the East Coast in Maryland. And, you know, that was called shopping the contract. You weren't allowed to do any of that. And they, the brokers made absolutely sure that uh, no inkling of that happened. And it, and it seems like on Million Dollar List in California, they're constantly doing that stuff. Well, there's a, like, clause, there's a clause right in the contract that says that it's, you do not, the offer is not confidential. It's right in the contract. In our contract, it's right there. And so a, you're just allowed to be like Jackie. Look, I got, I got yeah. one. I got one three. If you can get me one three five, I'll give it to you because you're a much better agent than this. You are absolutely allowed to do that. That's crazy. Yeah, we, you, we. My job is to get my client the best offer, not to be fair to other agents. Like I have a fiduciary duty to my client, right? To get them the highest best offer. Yeah. So as long as I'm not lying or doing anything unethical. Well, in Maryland, they would say it's unethical because you're, uh, let's say it would lend itself to some sort of discrimination, mm. you know, like, oh, they, they, they picked me, they didn't pick me and told the other person what my offer was, you know, because they wanted that person based on, you know, race, color, creator, protected class, I think, or I think that's where it originated. And then... Also, I think there's a fairness. It was a fairness thing too, right? It was like highest and best. It's always, it's, it's not just the REO companies that are allowed to do that highest and best. You know, it's everyone's supposed to do highest and best. Let the chips fall where they may. But who said, who made that up? <laughs> who said those were the rules? I don't know. Some lawyer from the, from right. The- I mean, I, I mean, I get what you're saying about discrim- Like we don't, we don't want to discriminate. Absolutely right, not right. ever. No, but you know, but the, like if, if one person's offer is highest and best, but the agent is a mess and the offer is written, you know, like in a way that it could fall apart or there could end up being all these other problems. doesn't really make sense. It's just because they wrote the highest and best. And, offer and I think it. some of it falls back too. If you're, if you're double dipping, like you oh, get yeah. all so the offers and you got your own buyer and then you're like, eh. yeah, no, I don't do that. I don't double end deals. You don't double end deals. No, I have twice out of like, hundreds and hundreds of transactions, but they were not in, they were not in competitive situations. What do you do? What do I do instead of double ending deals? Yeah, let's say you got, let's say someone calls you and says, Hey man, I want to see that house. And they say, I want to buy it. And then you got five offers on it. Oh yeah. I, so I don't think actually, I don't think, I mean, you can. It's I mean, a lot strict. of people will go to the listing agent because they think that the listing agent is getting twice the commission so that then the listing agent of course will be incentivized to tell them what the highest offer is and then they'll win the house. Yeah. So I think that that's a really, I mean, I know that people do it all over the place and some people who I respect, but in my market, it's very, very frowned upon and only like slimy people do that. So if you want to be a respected agent in the marketplace, like you wouldn't do that. And, And in fact, I think it really hurts you in terms of being able to get great offers for your clients. Because if I, put myself in the shoes of another agent. Like if I, if I think a listing agent is writing on their property, why am I going to even bother? Well, why would I point. write on yeah. that property? Right. So I think it actually hurts the seller from getting offers because I don't want to compete against the listing agent. Right. Well, that's, I guess that's the point that they were like, well, that's why they make it illegal back East is because they, you know, yeah, they, they so, want it to be fair. But if you're not, if it's if it's industry standard not to double dip, 
you know? I'm not, it, it does happen. I think in here, in order to make it happen on a, um, I would never do it, but I believe the rules here, if you're doing it on a multiple offer situation is that it's supposed to be like in sealed envelopes, you're supposed to get your broker involved. So like, you don't, you know, you kind of step out. I mean, I just think it just doesn't appear that that's not shady. Yeah. And so then, if, and then if you, I have a, I have buyers all the time. Yeah. And then, then it, and it goes to your point. If you do that and you get the broker involved and it's in a sealed envelope and then you get two offers and you're not, you're, you're not quote unquote shopping them, you're not going back and forth, then, then the seller doesn't get as much money. Right. Exactly. So, and then are you doing your fiduciary duty to that seller? Or are you just worried about getting paid twice? So, I mean, here, like, I, I mean, I just think I, I get paid well enough. I don't need to try to double dip on things. Um, and I don't feel good about it personally. And I like to feel good about my work. So I wouldn't do that. But so buyers do call me all the time and say, like, I want to work with you as a listing agent. And I just say, I don't do that. I think you should have the best representation. And so I'm happy to refer you to another agent. Now, of course, if I refer them to another agent, if they got into contract, I'd still get a referral fee on that, which I would disclose to the, um, to the seller. And I would never give them any sort of preferential treatment, but I don't even know if that's ever, I don't even know if that's ever actually happened that I can recall. Yeah, because that I think kinda... if they're not going to work with you, a lot of times they just go find a different agent. Like they really wanted, they really thought they were going to get preferential treatment. So they wanted to work for you. So as soon as I try to refer them, oftentimes they don't stick. Yeah. The cleanest way would not to even get a referral fee. Cause then you're like, well, yep. you know, all, everybody's, you know, I didn't make the decision based on correct or whatever. Yep, money. Okay. You're right. So, um, all right, cool. So, um, let's talk about where your business is coming from. I mean, it's been, you know, you're eight years, nine years in the biz. So, where are you getting your business? So, I get a lot of my business from Sphere. That's 50% of it. So, past clients, previous clients, friends. And then last year, the second source was actually business to business, as I call it. So, I have a lot of, I like mastermind groups a lot. So I've, I, like, I like consistency of schedule and not having to think about things too much. So forming groups of people that I'm getting together with on a regular basis, that it's just on the calendar and then we're getting together and they're people who potentially I can refer business to, they can refer business back to me. I think when I first got into the business, I had started like a B&I which was really great for me, like in the very beginning. And I learned a ton, ton, ton from it. But at some point it got to be that for whatever reason, I wasn't attracting the high, the highest quality people. And it was just a lot of turnover. And so I, so when I left, I decided, okay, I'm going to start a mastermind with professionals that are of a certain caliber. And that's worked out really, really well. So we meet that we meet once, once a, um, a month and there's a CPA and a contractor and a designer. And, you know, they're all mostly work with very, very, very high end luxury clients. But then also in the process of being in BNI, I just learned to connect, you know, it's like trying to find somebody who can refer you five or six deals or 10 deals a year instead of chasing one person. I mean, of course it's worth it to chase one person too, but I'd rather, you only have so much time in the day, right? Right. No. Yeah. I mean, certainly a, a, a designer 
or like you said, a, a contractor is going to have a lot more real estate leads than an auto mechanic. Yeah. You know, but, I mean, and, and also like, you know, just then that one friend that's like maybe going to sell their house. It's like, okay, well get in front of a business person. That's like seeing, you know, clients every day. Homeowners. Yeah. And, and so you created it yourself. You got to pick the people in it. You got to make sure that the people you pick were high end, right? They weren't going to give you a $150,000, you know, referral. Not that it even exists where you're at, but you know what I mean? Um, house to sell or whatever. And so, and you meet once a month. You, you, do you charge anything for it? No. So, so that makes it even better, right? So it's more, and, and is it just informal? Do people just show up and you talk or do you, do you, I used to be in La Tip where you had to like pass around little pieces of paper with like a tip on them with a lead and everyone had to bring a, a little lead every, every, I mean, is there any formality to it? Um, not like that. B and I, that's how it was. So we, we do have, we rotate leaders every week, every month so that one person is leading a discussion. There's not any sort of like formal, like you have to give this kind of business. It's just just really, it's really just staying on top of mind for people who are really high quality and then just, you know, trying to give value to each person in the group as much as possible. And, and it's not, these things are not always tangible. Like sometimes they're, sometimes they're just introductions to other people that lead to referrals, right? Um, in addition to that one, I have several of those that are, are based on like real estate agents, which is the second other place that I get business from is other realtors and other markets. So San Francisco is a place where it's very transient. Like it's very expensive. The average price here, house here is $1.5 million. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people are leaving. And people are also always coming for new jobs and things like that. So just there's a lot of, you know, ebb and flow for people leaving and going. And there's a lot of cities that are somewhat close by. And I only stay primarily in San Francisco. So if I have somebody who wants to go to Oakland, which is only you know, 30 minutes across drive, I, I will not go there. I will refer it to another really great agent there. And there's, you know, six or seven cities around. So I, basically I have the top agent in like five of the cities that we meet once a month and we, we don't compete against each other. We absolutely share, you know, here's the farming piece that I'm doing and here's this thing that I'm doing. And then we share a lot of clients as well. So there's quite a bit of business that's coming out of that, which is really fun. Yeah, and you got to make sure that they're they're not like driving to San Francisco, right? You know what I mean, like to to work buyers too. So it's got to be they have to have the sort of mental boundaries because a lot of people say, "Heck, I'll drive half an hour," right? So they have to have the same mental boundaries that they're not going to enter your space and you're not going to enter their space. Correct. I mean, in in the event that they did, it wouldn't be like it wouldn't be a you know, a terrible offense, you know, especially if they're showing up to the group and adding value and giving, um, you know, if there's some reason why they think they need to work a buyer there, but initially in terms of inviting them. And, and also if you think about it, if they are the top agent in their town, they probably, they have enough business. They're not trying to go outside. It takes a long time to go somewhere else. And then you don't really understand the market. And so you're much better off just referring it to another top agent. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easier to though to know that you're not going to compete, right? To know that they're not going to show up on a listing appointment against you. So for sure, yeah, no, that's great. I used to always, you know, try to 
create those as well. What, let's talk technology, uh, things like that. What, what, uh, what phone apps or uh, software systems are you using that are neat, new and exciting? I don't know about new and exciting, but one of the things that we've started using a lot um, recently that's been really fun is Loom, uh, which is a screen recording technology. I don't think it's new. Yeah, um, no, I, we use that too, but tell everybody about it. So I, I have some turnover happening on my team right now. And um, as part of the training process, like the people who are leaving have been amazing and giving me a lot of notice and are staying and train in training and onboarding the new people, which is amazing. Awesome. I'm so happy. And so as part of that, they, during their training sessions, they're recording the screen recordings onto loom. So then it can be put like, you know, we also use Asana um, as a, as a um, project management system. So there's a checklist around like every like buyer and seller and all kinds of systems that we have. So then those can go inside of there and so that the new people, if ever they forget, like, how do I write an offer? They can just go onto that screen reading, re- recording technology, which is, you know, I mean, I remember like trying to learn how to write an offer and I'm like writing down and highlighting and, you know, it's just so hard to like write that down where you can remember it and you go to do it and you're like, wait, what box was it? But if there's a screen recording, it's just, it's right there and it's, it's amazing and fast. And so that's such a great way, I mean, to not even you know, have to duplicate your efforts. Like even if you're, you don't even necessarily have to sit and train someone. The next time you're writing an offer, you can just talk to yourself out loud with the screen recording on and being like, this is what I'm doing right now. And then put it in there. So I love that. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I love it too. We, I, I, you know, I just switched an employee from somebody stateside here to uh, a, a virtual assistant in the Philippines, and and this girl's incredible. I, you know, we had about uh, literally like over fifty Loom videos, and it was like here's the here's where they're at, Dropbox, whatever, and you know, go in, and we use Trello, and th- this is on Trello, and these are the Loom videos, and uh, let me know when you're finished, and you can start after you finished them. So she watched them all. I don't know how many times she watched them, but she watched them and then she started and man, she hasn't missed a beat. She's probably the best employee I've had in that job out of like seven. Wow. And, um, and it's crazy and it works so well. And, and, and I see these brokers and they're like, uh, some of these brokers I see, I get emails and they're like, hey, you know, we have a, uh, how to write a contract 101 on Tuesday night at 7.30. And I'm like, Really? I'm like, dude, I mean, that is so antiquated, you know, just send them the loom video, how to do it and let them learn by themselves. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's really awesome. So, and we used to use, well, like I'm an Apple user, so they have QuickTime, which is, it's pretty much the same thing, but loom is easier. And the other thing about loom is it stores it in the cloud. I mean, we use Dropbox too, but like those videos are huge. And so you know, it's just nice to have it like there's a website that everyone can log on to and then it's organized and, and it's not on anyone's system. Right. Yeah. And guys, if you don't know what she's talking about, basically just you're recording your screen. So you could, you can, and I think your face could be on it too, right? So you could have your face yeah. and then you could have the screen and then you could show her just explaining the contract like a third grader can understand one time and then done. Right. And then never again. And then or, or somebody else on your team that's leaving, let's say someone's given notice, have them do every task on Loom and explain it. 
and then done. And it's in your library. The next person, even if, if, even if your new person quits after five days, the next person after that can just go right into the library and, and watch it again and learn that way. And most, most younger people, uh, not to stereotype, but it's true, you know, are used to learning like this. So, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah. And Asana is awesome too. Do you, do you use that at all? Um, I've seen it before, but I can't say I've used it. Tell us about it. It's, it's just a, it's a project management system. So, you know, you, we have like templates for every single email that goes out and, you know, there's just a checklist of this is what happens. Like when you meet a new client and this is what happens when they've signed on with you. And this is what happens when they're in contract. And this is what happens after contract. And then we just duplicate that for every single client. And so, you know, it makes it easy for a team with multiple people, like you can have the same things assigned every time and they're going in and checking things off and you know what's done and what's not done. And it's, it's a great, it's, it's a great technology. I really like it. And how is your team uh, broken up? So I have, um, there's me and then I have two buyer's agents. Um, one just joined my team in December. The other one has been with me for about three years. Um, and then I have three people on the back end. Um, doing a, a lot of listing type tasks, but so one person handles my calendar and gifting and inside marketing. And then the other one is a listing manager and she basically, you know, is kind of a project manager and also handles my email. And then there's another listing coordinator as well that is like doing a lot of running around tasks, cutting t- keys, checking on vendors, going and, you know, doing showings from time to time, and then also helping with some of those listing tasks. All right, beautiful. And, and so most of those 55 deals, right, because you only had one other agent last year, I guess were yours, right? So 40 of those were, 40 were yours, yeah. mine, but mine with the help of three other people in the background. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's, that, that's a lot of deals to juggle just yourself too, you know? Um, with three other people and three full-time people. Yeah, they're all those. Those people are all full-time W two earners. Yeah. Okay, and you said uh, she does my scheduling and gifting. Tell me what that what gifting means. So I'm a big gifter. We spend about three thousand dollars a month on gifts. I believe in building relationships and people. I also believe in the law of reciprocation. So I think if you give people things that they want to give things back to you, whether or not they realize it or not, and plus it can be really fun. So, you know, as like a, on a base level, you know, everyone basically who's anything meaningful to me gets like a, you know, really beautiful like chocolate on their birthday from a local chocolatier with a handwritten card. Um, And then on the anniversary of selling a house, there's another like, bigger chocolate set from that, that it's Christopher Elbow, who's just like, people are always like, they take pictures of it and send it to me. They're like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. <laughs> so they get that, um, it's FedExed over to them, like an ice and stuff like that. So it's just kind of production to even open it. And then, um, you know, there's obviously closing gifts. We have a cutting board that we had custom made that has this really cool map of San Francisco on it. And then it says like with deep gratitude, the Christian team and has our logo. And then we do like a global knife, which is like a hundred dollar beautiful knife. Um, And that's wrapped and I'm big onto wrapping. We spend a lot of money on like, you know, really beautiful wrapping paper and bows. And 
So those are like kind of the basic systems, but you know, every time I have a meeting with a new buyer or seller, they get a gift within 24 hours. So it's like something shows up. Thank you so much for the meeting. You know, looking what forward kind to working with you. Get that? Yeah, like let's say, yeah, that's more chocolate. Chocolate, more chocolate. Yeah, I mean that chocolate company makes it really easy for us because they'll we send it, they send it out, so we don't actually. We used to bring it in house and carry the inventory and do all that. So that's been nice to work with them. Yeah, so I mean, we've had different things. We change it usually from year to year about like what is the gift that's happening, but that's what what it is right now. And then you know we try to pay attention to just you know, when did someone have a birthday or did someone die or, you know, any life events, you know, try to pay attention and send stuff over. And then, and then also like for businesses, like that we're trying to build those relationships with just, you know, sending like, you know, sometimes we send lunch over um, different things like that, just like for the team, um, you know, with a stack of business cards, just like thinking of you, let us know if you need anything, have lunch on us, um, cookies, yeah, I mean, there's... And it's probably so easy to gift. I think a lot of people don't gift because they they chalk it, meaning they're like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. I got to go online. I got to order it. I got to make sure it's sent. I got to put on a credit card. You know what I mean? If you have an assistant that's just doing it, you'd be yeah. like, send lunch over to Frank. He, he works at Apex, blah, blah, blah. And then right. That's it, you know? Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, before I had that, I would think of the things and then never do them because I'd never get around to actually sending it. But I'd be like, oh, I should do that. Like, oh, somebody, you know, just had a baby, I should send flowers and then I'd forget. But now it's like, I just text Angela and I'm like, hey, make this happen. And she does it the very same day. And, you know, so it's done. And then of course, you know, systems are everything, right? So she, for the, for the main stuff, she knows what to do and it just happens. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, Ruth, let's wrap this up with the with the thought of what you would do if you had to start over again. Knowing knowing what you know now, you know at this point in the game, what advice would you give yourself? You know, if you're your first week in the business. So I'm really big into coaching, and I did start coaching early on, but I think I would have coached bigger sooner. What's that mean? I would have hired a better coach faster. I mean, I think that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, none of the stuff that I'm talking about today, or I'm sure anybody that you ever have on here, I mean, well, I'll just speak for myself. It's not like the stuff I'm talking about is not like revolutionary, right? It's just the basic stuff that you read in every book on how to be successful. Um, But I think it feels like sometimes that things are going like that, oh, only like this extraordinary person is able to do the business. And it's just not true. So I think if you can get in a coaching program where you can be around people who are much more successful than you, and then realize they're just normal people that are actually working a little harder than you or a little smarter than you to see that, then you're like, okay, like I can do that too, that evidence. I think the faster that you can see it, the better. And I think sometimes, you know, like the, the, the bar to entry is so low in this industry. It's, it's easy to be around people who are just not doing well. But if you get into like a, like a really good coaching program, then the people who are spending the money to be there, they're probably going to be the select people in that industry. So if you can just, you know, I think surround yourself by people who are much more successful than you and just emulate them as quick as possible as fast as possible right yeah that's the key and absolutely you are the average of the five people you hang around the most and and uh, the faster you get there the quicker you'll you'll grow 
I guess. So Ruth, this has been a blast. What I'm going to do, guys, is I'm going to put it on hybendigital.com backslash Ruth Krishnan, and it's K-R-I-S-H-N-A-N. That's K-R-I-S-H-N-A-N. There, I'm going to put all Ruth's information there as well. I'm going to put her email address or contact information. Guys, if you have a referral in San Francisco, it's clear that you want to give it to Ruth. She will take great care of it and she is used to dealing with referrals from other agents. Ruth, this has been a blast. If I'm ever in San Francisco, I will definitely look you up and we can break some bread. Sounds good. I'd love that. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Rockstar Nation, thank you for listening to Real Estate Rockstars. Listen, I need a favor. If you find this free content helpful, if you find our downloadable items from each guest helpful, please, I need you to pull out your pointing finger. Yes, the one finger that points at people and hit subscribe. Yes, subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the better we look in the ratings and the easier it is to get guests like Robert Kiyosaki, Barbara Corcoran, all the players that are on a million dollar listing in the different cities. All that stuff makes it easier the more subscribers we get. So please subscribe. And listen, there's a lot of places you can leave comments. There's a lot of places you can like. We're on Facebook. We have an Instagram page. Instagram page is I am Pat Hyben. The Facebook is Real Estate Rockstars Radio. Feel free to leave us comments there. The most popular form of commenting seems to happen on YouTube. Yes, for whatever reason, it's a very open environment. So just go to YouTube and go to Real Estate Rockstars Radio and leave us comments there. Some of them we will read on the show. And we love your feedback. So thanks, guys. And I hope you are having a great day. Oh, and also, listen, if you're going to subscribe and you haven't already left us a, a review on iTunes, please do that too. Have a great day and thanks so much, Rockstar Nation. I really appreciate you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.